Scripture reading this morning is in Psalm 76. Psalm 76. <clears throat> now, if you're turning to Psalm 76, you're going to have a hard time following me this morning. I'm going to read from a book that John Keeble wrote, and he translated, he was a Hebrew, and he translated the Hebrew text into the parallelism that the Hebrew text is into English. So he, he made it into poetry so that it could be sung. And he finally finished, and he wrote this book in 1839. 1839. There you go. <clears throat> in Judah, God is known. His name in Israel is great and glorious. His tent in Salem he would frame. On Zion dwelt victorious. There burning shafts from many a bow, he shivered targ and spear laid low, the shield, the sword, and battle. More glorious than from the hills of prey, thine awful, awful light is shining. The proud had cast their spoils away in deep sleep reclining. Then warriors missed their arm of might. God, our fathers, thou didst smite. Fell car and horse astonished. Woe, awful God, to whom is given in wrath to stand before thee. Thou maddest thy judgment heard from heaven. The deep of earth adore thee. They heard, they sank, for God arose out of his place to judge his foes, the meek ones here upholding. Men's wrath must praise thee, Lord, till thou have girt the last wrath on thee. Vow they to God and pay their vow who wait in course upon thee. Gifts to the dreadful one he brought, tamer of the monarch, haughty thought, to king of earth, applauding. That's good. That's the scripture reading for this morning. Keep your finger in that, or put a marker in that psalm, and then turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're almost done in this section. Almost done in this section talking about sin. We have talked about sin, 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 and more sin. We have talked about the remedy to sin, the gospel, in chapter 1. The end of chapter 1, we talked about the wicked sinner who did his sin publicly. Chapter 2, we talked about the moral sinner who did his sin in private. Then at the end of chapter 2, we talked about the hypocrite. The hypocrite who said one thing and then did the other. Now in chapter 3... We're talking about the Jewish person, the person who had been blessed by God 
and then did not believe God. Was given promises from God, but did not believe that God could keep his promise. And Paul is trying to conclude his thought, the point that everyone sins. Every person sins. Now, the Jewish opponents that Paul had in that day believed that because of the covenants they had, they were free from moral responsibility. In other words, they believed they could do anything sinful and still be Jewish. Do anything sinful and still be a part of the covenant with God. Paul is trying to explain to them that you are saved by grace. That some Jews will accept the grace of God and be saved. And some will reject His mercy. Paul is trying to show in chapters 1-3 through that all human beings are unable to keep the law. The only way to keep the law he'll get to in chapter 5 is by the power of the Holy Spirit. My interpretation of chapters 1, 2, and 3, here you go. The person who sins is unable to earn his way to heaven by keeping the law. The only hope of mankind is dependent upon the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ and on the cross and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The most obvious thing that Paul is trying to get across to us is that everybody, everybody who sins tries to rationalize their sin. You've heard it. You've heard it yourself. Sinners always rationalize their sin. They will not admit their sinfulness. They will always try to rationalize it some way so they don't look so sinful. There's a man who collected classic automobiles. And he found one of his favorite cars, a 57 Ford Thunderbird convertible. He found it. He saw it. It looked good. It was, had a good paint job. It was powder blue. It was nice. He bought it. He intended to do some touch-up work and then paint it red. That was his goal. He started removing the layers of paint. And guess what he found? He found rust and corrosion. You can look really good. Your paint can be very thick. But underneath that, there is a sin nature that corrupts you. You may look good on Sunday morning. You may look like the best Bible believers ever with that big old Bible sitting in your lap. But I can't see the corrosion in your heart. God can. Which might be even more scary than me knowing what's in your heart. 
So, chapters 1, 2, and 3 is trying to get you to face your sinfulness. Admit it to God that you need His grace. Turn to Him as your only hope and have the work of Jesus Christ accredited to your account. Have the Holy Spirit come inside you and seal you as a child of God. Or, try to rationalize your sin. That's your only option. Chapter 3, Book of Romans, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. How can God be righteous and wrathful at the same time? How can God be righteous and wrathful at the same time? First thing you need to know, and I'm using the, the term church attender, okay? Not a believer, but somebody who attends church, which seems to be the person that he's talking about. In that day and age, the religious person, the churchgoer, was a Jewish person. They went to church every Saturday. The church attender who does not believe will be judged as any other sinner. We're getting to chapter 3. We're almost done. We're almost ready to talk about grace. But we got to get the rest of the sinners on board. Now we're talking to those who are religious. The religious sinner. The church attender. The church attender who does not believe in his heart, who is corroded inside by sin, will be judged as any other sinner. You are not any better sinner because you go to church on Sundays. You're not any better sinner because you come to church on Sunday nights. You're not any better sinner because you come to church on Wednesday night. Coming to church does not save you. Righteousness is a gift from God. Unrighteousness will demonstrate the righteousness of God. Paul is pursuing the argument by adding questions to his argument about everyone being a sinner. Paul agreed that law keeping is necessary to be saved. But the only way to keep the law is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our unrighteousness, our sin of unbelief, like the Jews who did not believe the promises of God, verse 3, they were not believing. Their heart was not circumcised. They were demonstrating, recommending, commending, giving approval, showing they're demonstrating God's righteousness through their sinfulness. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrated, same word, His own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The righteousness of God. 
God sinful Jews the same way they Gentiles. He will judge church attenders who are corroded on the inside the same way he will judge those sinners that are openly wicked outside church. By the way, I made a change in the uh, insert. You'll notice I got a little box there called References. That was the verses I'm going to cover three days ago. Okay? Some of them will change, some of them will not. But some of them may be in my notes today, and I still won't get to them. You can get to them anytime you want after the service. So I'm giving them as support. The unrighteousness of the Jews that did not believe the covenant, the promises of God, will show the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is his character and who he is. Look at the end of verse 5. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous. Second, the church attender who thinks that God being righteous and wrathful at the same time can't happen, the church attender who does unrighteousness is always connected to the wrath of God. You do unrighteousness, you are connected to the wrath of God. Matter of fact, you are still under the wrath of God now if you're committing unrighteousness that are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Wrath is always connected to unrighteousness. God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous. We talked about wrath in chapter 1. God inflicts wrath. His wrath comes and it can be seen now and will be seen in the future. The wrath to come <laughs> underscores, <laughs> the wickedness now underscores the wrath to come. It'll be your reward for unrighteousness. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God will take care of showing wrath on sinners. God's wrath is directly connected to his righteousness. If God was not righteous, he would not have any wrath. So, if you are corroded on the inside, you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you will stand before him one day and be held accountable. And his wrath will be given to you. God is just and holy, and His wrath goes against everything that conflicts with His character. Today, in a way, wrath is being withheld by the kindness and tolerance and patience of God. But the wrath of God will happen. There are 630 passages in the Bible that talk about the wrath of God. It will happen. By the way, 
Notice Paul here is answering a question. He's getting to a person that he's witnessing to. He's starting with the sin problems you have. And when we share the gospel message, sometimes we get questions from them about the gospel message. Notice what Paul does. Paul answers the question briefly and then goes on. If you're witnessing to somebody, they bring up a question, answer it briefly and then go on with the gospel message. That's what Paul does. Paul answers it and goes on. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe he has been judged already. If you are not saved, you are corroded on the inside, and you still are under the wrath of God. And eventually you'll be judged. By the way, a little side note, the solution to that is salvation. If you want to know how to be saved, ask the person next to you. They should be able to tell you. Third, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Third, how can a God be righteous and wrathful at the same time? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. Here it comes. Everybody there? I'll say it again so you have more time. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. Here we go. For it is not, for it is not who commends himself that is approved. Okay? If you say you're a good person, that commendation does not matter in the whole universe. It does not matter. Or, for that matter, another person comes along and says, you're a good person. That does not carry weight. Verse 18, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Who the Lord commends. Third, put it this way. The church attender who does not believe has only one condemnation, commendation that counts. Commendation he needs comes from God. And if he does not believe in God, he's not going to get the commendation that he needs. There is only one that you need approval from. All people need the approval of God. All people need the approval of God. The Lord commends. God is the one who passes judgments on the actions of people. Why? Because he is the measure of righteousness. Why? Because he knows your heart. For the believers, the final test will come at the beam of seat of Christ. For non-believers, the great white throne. Everyone will be examined. The believers will be examined by their work. The non-believers will be examined by their names not being in the books. There's only the master who can approve. Only the master's approval matters. You commend yourself, 
you pat yourself on the back, it counts for nothing. Romans 2.29 says, But if a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart by the Spirit. You have to be circumcised by the heart by the Spirit of God in order for you to be commended by God. And what happens is, your corroded, sinful body is recreated. And your praise comes from God. Your praise comes from God. Verse 7, Romans chapter 3, verse 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? But if through my lie the truth of God abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? How will God provide divine justice for the entire world? How will God provide justice for the entire world? He will do it by his truth by his truth. How will God provide divine justice for the world? He will do it for the church attender who rebels against the truth of God. The church attender who rebels against the truth of God will get justice from God as a sinner. The church attender rebels against the truth of God. When the church attender who knows the truth of God rebels against the truth you are proving what is true <laughs> when you deny the truth that God gives when you deny the promise you deny trusting him when you deny it you are proving what is true by you denying it by you rebelling against it by you not doing it if someone lacks truth, it enhances God's truthfulness. God will condemn you as a sinner. My lie. See that word lie there? Only time in the Bible. It's used right here. Only time. And I think the reason why it's only used here is because one of the meanings it has is unfaithfulness unfaithfulness. And unfaithfulness was the first thing he talked about in verses 2, 3, and 4. Unfaithfulness. When you are unfaithful to the truth of God, you're proving what the truth of God is. The Jewish people were not being faithful to the covenant God gave them. And by them not being faithful to the covenant, God is glorifying himself by that rejection. The person who seeks his own way above all else naturally resists any other way, including God's way, which is the true way. The truth of God refers to his faithfulness. The truth of God refers to God being righteous. In verse 5, it focuses on God's truthfulness. In judging sin. Disobedience to the truth is the same thing as rebellion. When you rebel against God, you are rejecting His truth. That is why our world today has such a 
weird definition of truth. Truth is whatever truth is to me. Just about the opposite of what truth is. <laughs> truth is what God says it is. And God is truth. And God is faithful to that truth. When you rebel against truth, you are actually showing, pointing a finger towards the truth of God. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. His glory. His glory always seems to be the quality of God which sets him apart from everything else. The glory of God is the sum total of attributes that is true. God is true. I was reminded by an article. The guy was uh, talking about truth of God. And he was talking about how... Uh, um, uh, archaeologists found uh, a Syrian tablet and it talked about the historical accuracy of the Old Testament Bible. And the article was confirming truth to the Bible because of what the Assyrian stone said. That is backwards. You don't affirm the Bible is true because of a Assyrian tab, tablet. You say the Assyrian tablet is true because of what the Bible says. The Bible is the truth. You don't say that science supports the Bible. You say the Bible supports science. The truth is in our word of God. And we see that God is the God of truth. And God in the Bible gave us truth to judge everything else in this world. And we're getting it backwards today in our thinking. Truth. Truth. The end of verse 7. Why am I also being judged as a sinner? How will God provide divine justice for the entire world? Number two. The church attender who rebels will be an indication of the truth of God. If you don't like that word indication, uh, you can put a sign, a symbol, a pointer, whatever it is that you want to use to talk about how the church attender who rebels against the promises of God does not believe the promises of God, doesn't believe what the Bible says. Whatever you're doing, you are showing what the truth of God is when you reject it, when you go against it, when you do something different than what God said is true. You're proving what is true. As a sinner, again, justifying what is sin, giving new names to what used to be sin, always has been sin, and changing what it means. The Greek term... First time it's used here in Romans, sinner. Sinner is the, uh, well, okay, I wouldn't say it's the same thing, but it's almost closely a cuss word for the Jews. 
You didn't use it. The only time you would say it is when you're talking about Gentiles. A Jew would never use the word of another Jew. To Paul, calling everyone sinners would have people standing up saying, what are you doing? And you can imagine what his message would be in a synagogue. Because he's trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ. A Jew of that day taught that without the law, a person was a sinner, a Gentile. And having the oracles of God, a Jew could never be called a sinner. Here Paul is calling him a sinner. A sinner is a person who falls short of God's standards. Who, according, who is according to God a sinner? So far in verse 3, somebody who does not believe God. Now here, someone who does unrighteousness. Somebody does something that's not righteous. So, who would that include, Paul? That would include everyone. Everyone. Everyone is a sinner. No matter how much, quote-unquote, biblical knowledge you have, if you are still corroded on the inside, you still need help. Verse 8. And why not? As they are slanderously, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. He talks about what they're saying about them living under grace. That you can do any sin you want and still be saved. That you will bring about something good for God by sinning. The church attender, number three. The church attender who rebels will be justly condemned by the tr truth of God. The church attender who rebels will be justly condemned by the truth of God. Uh, slanderous, that word there is blasphemy, really, in the Greek, blasphemy. To blaspheme the nature of God. And I'm not sure why the New American Standard translated slander should be blasphemy. <clears throat> Let's do evil and bring about good. Well, how silly is that? Talk about redefining sin. Almost every show we got on television now redefines sin. Almost every article we read in the newspaper redefines sin. We're making it a fine art defining what sin is. And instead what we're doing is we're condemning ourselves, showing the corrosion of our heart. That good will somehow come. Their condemnation is just. Literally a heavy judgment. Uh, really not talking about the act of judging, but the contents of judging. False teachers seem to be teaching this, and they deserve condemnation or punishment. John 7.24 says, Do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment. We judge by righteous judgment. Now we skip the verses we're going through. We start at 7, we went to 8, we skipped 6. Let's go back to 6 real quick. Romans 3.6 May it never be. 
For otherwise, how will God judge the world? How will God judge the world? How will God provide divine justice for the entire world? Number four. Anybody who rebels against God, and the word anybody there means anybody. Anybody who rebels against God will be judged by the truth of God. Anybody who rebels against God will be judged by the truth of God. The truth of God. Paul says, may it never be. The strongest negative he can say. No way. No how. God does not encourage or condone sin in order to glorify himself. But God will maybe use sin for his own glory. How does God judge the world? He can still be righteous. He can still have wrath. And he can still express that against unrighteousness. And still be righteous. God's righteousness includes saving righteousness and judicial righteousness. He will be righteous when he judges you. He can, without a mistake, judge you because he can see your heart. He can see your heart. Psalm 76, verse 10, in, in uh, my non-poetic English version says, For the wrath of man shall praise you. Even the wrath of men will praise God. The world. If God were unrighteous, he would not be qualified to judge the world. God will judge the world. God is not unrighteous to inflict wrath on you. Even though your sin magnifies his righteousness, then he judges you for that sin. If that were the case, God would be unfair. But God is not unfair. God will judge sin. He talks about the wicked sinner in chapter 1. He talks about the moral sinner in chapter 2. He talks about the hypocritical sinner. He talks about the Jewish or churchgoer sinner. The good person who thinks they're good is now being talked about. That person who somehow uses some way to justify his sins Or to change them. Or to say, well, culture today doesn't see it as sin. Or, I don't think it's sin. I don't think my God would say it's sin. Or whatever they want to say to justify their sinful pleasures. Application. Will I do the actions of righteousness... Instead of being rebellious to the righteousness and truth of God. And will I then preach the truth of God to others all by the power of the Holy Spirit? The power of the Holy Spirit makes you different. Powerful. Makes you able to be a righteousness. Will I do the actions of righteousness instead of trying of being rebellious to the righteousness and truth of God? And preach the truth of God to others all by the power of the Holy Spirit. When our sin makes God's faithfulness, righteousness, and truth stand out, it's due not to our service or our sin, but it's due to God using His sin, your sin, my sin, for His 
glory. Understand, God is always faithful. Count on it. God is always righteous. Count on it. God will always rightly judge the sinner righteously. Especially those that sit in church and hear the word of God and reject it. No one can do evil to produce good. Don't think that your sin is somehow good for you. I heard Dear Abby. Dear Abby was writing back to a person who went through an adulterous relationship. And Dear Abby said that sometimes it helps marriages who have an affair. What? She's trying to change the definition of sin and somehow make sin a good thing. If you try to take a sin and make it a good thing, you cannot do it. Matter of fact, that is not your job in this world to make sin better. You want to know what your job is? Here you go. In the NCAA, had cross-country championships. They, had, they did the championship in Riverside, California. They have a mountain course up there. It's a good little run. They had... Uh, 128 runners, the best of the best in the nation of America, the best runners, had a hilly course for them to run on. They ran all 128. They got to a turn, and one kid, Mike Del Cabo, said the guys in front of him went the wrong way. Let's go, let's go left and right. Everybody was going ahead of him. Mike said, we're going left. And the right way to go was right. He stopped. He started shouting to the guys behind him, you have to go this way. A lot of the guys that were following him actually laughed at him and went by him on the wrong way with the group. Out of 128 runners, when they got to that turn, 123 of them went the wrong way. 123. That means five went the right way. Mike was able to get four guys to turn and go the right way. Your job this week is to get people to go the right way. You stand at the turn and you say, go the right way. They will laugh at you, some of them. Some of them will continue to go down the sinful way they're headed, which, by the way, will lose the race because they're going the wrong way. Which, the Bible says, is called the lake of fire which is down that way. And if you are a sinner, if your heart's not right, if your heart is corrupt, you will head that way and go the wrong way. Our job is to be like Mike and to stand at the turn and say, go this way. It's the correct way. 
He got four guys to go with him. Guess what happened to those five guys that went the right way? They were the first five to win. In cross country, you give medals to the top ten guys. They didn't have, they didn't need the extra five medals because they weren't five other guys. They got lost. And if you go the wrong way, making decisions on sin, you will go the wrong way if you make some kind of adjustment of what sin is. Justify it. Say it doesn't hurt people. It's just my sin. It's my pet sin. It's just what I do. It's who I am. I just like it. I do it. I want it. I like it. I have to do it. I want it. I want to do it. I have to do it. You're on the wrong road. This way is what the Bible calls life. This way is what the Bible calls a narrow road. This way is the way three. This way is the way to win. Or go the other way. Where the majority of people are going. And you will lose. promise you. I promise you by the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God, and the truth of God, that's the wrong way. And if you go down that road, one day you will prove that God is faithful, righteous, and true. Father, thank you for this time in your word. I pray, Father, that this word would, would cause us, first off, Father, if we're not a believer, or if our heart is corrupt, that we accept Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That we ask the person sitting next to us, how can we know Jesus Christ? That we would somehow repent of our sins, Father, and turn to you. That we would put our trust in you, Father, for our livelihood. For our spiritual livelihood. And that, Father, that we would trust you to be faithful, trust you to be righteous, trust you to be true. And that Father will follow your way. And I pray, Father, for maybe the person who has accepted you, that does have the Holy Spirit within them, I pray, Father, that it would encourage them, Father, to go out and tell their friends that there's another road to go on. It's the road of righteousness. It's the road of truth. It's the road of faithfulness. And God will be faithful. I pray, Father, that you help us to put this passage and apply it to our lives so that we would be able to share with those that are headed for an eternity without you the way to win the narrow road. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.